Big Ten. Well, we need to order one. Yeah, we actually, we do need to order you one. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Ready? Yes. I have big Wednesdays, we're feeding the homeless. Wednesdays, we're feeding the homeless. Okay. Papa could use some help. He only had like two people to help him yesterday, or last week. Just saying. Next. Next. Next women's study, Thursday, July 20th. Yep. 6 p.m. The next men's study, Saturday, August 5th, 8 a.m. This is the last chapter for us. We'll finish the book. Just saying. That's pretty impressive. I know. Well, Lauren's like, I like the fact that you just kind of go with it. And I was like, I'm not trying to keep up with anybody. <laughs> what chapter are you on? Four. Four? There you go. Well, I've had some stuff go on, so I'm not sure. The next youth night? Kennedy? You writing this down? Yes. <laughs> Thursday, July 27, 6 p.m. The marriage retreat, October 13th. We'll be there. We'll be retreating. We'll be retreating. Yeah. And then last, email updates, or check out the calendar on the website. The church and The church and Have you been there? No. You haven't been to that website? I have. <laughs> All right. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for time to come together to worship you, to learn more about who you are, your will, your ways, um, just what you would have for our lives. I ask you would speak to each one of us right where we're at. You know our thoughts, our desires. You know what each of us is going through. That you would lead us and guide us. That you would just speak to us through this study today. That you would help us to be a light and a witness to you. That you would help us to love those around us. That you would grant us patience and wisdom, knowledge and understanding. The things that can only come from you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, we are in Hebrews chapter 4. We left off at verse 11. So, our study today will start on verse 12. But, in case you don't remember, we'll go through some of what it said in chapter 4 early on. So, we'll just read through it all here. This morning. So Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 1. God's promise of entering his rest still, still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listen to God. For only we who believe 
can enter his rest. As for others, God said, my anger, in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Even though this rest has been ready since he made the world, we know it is ready because of the place in the scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. But in the other passage, God said, they will never enter my place of rest. So God's rest is there for people to enter, but those who first heard the good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So when we went through that, there was two types of rest mentioned. There was the seventh day. God created everything in seven days, giving us that picture that we're to take one day off a week. We're still on the first slide. There you go. We haven't got there yet. We're catching up. We were to take one day off a week, but the other type of rest is the eternal rest. This promise of rest in heaven, right? In paradise. So that's what he's talking about early on in chapter 4. that We've already gone over this rest. And that those who didn't hear it, he's mostly speaking of the Jews. God's chosen people who chose not to obey God, not to believe in the Messiah to come, to walk away from God. So today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. We read that in the Psalms, David, King David, David and Goliath David is the one that wrote that. Today, when you hear his voice. So that tells us a couple things. That tells us, one, that God speaks to us every single day. So every single day, God is speaking to us, some way, somehow. And it's our choice whether or not we listen to them, we listen to him, or it's our choice if we harden our hearts and do what we want. So continuing on here in verse 8. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God after creating the world, just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. If we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. So that is where we left off last time. And what he's saying is that when we choose to walk with God, when we choose to let him lead our lives, that he promises us a rest. Now, he doesn't promise us that everything will go well. In fact, we get promised the opposite. We get promised that we will have trials and tribulations, that there will be turmoil in our lives, that we'll go through struggles and challenges, is what we get promised. So we don't get promised peace, but we get promised a rest. And what this rest is, is it's the rest that while we have very little to no control over what happens in our lives, we can rest that God is leading and guiding that God will provide for us, that he will take us through this life, 
that he will open the doors he wants us to walk through and close the ones he doesn't. And that's what we'll get into today. So, now, we'll continue on here in verse 12. So our study today is going to be focused on verse 12 through 16. So, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercies, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So those are the four verses we're going to focus on today. Verses 12 through 14. So what God is promising us is a continued promise of this rest, a continued promise that He's involved in our lives. So when we ask Him into our lives, He never leaves us, He never abandons us. So we'll take it up, back apart verse by verse. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about his word, right? Which is the Bible. But his word is also brought up as other things. Jesus is referred to as God's word, right? In John chapter 1, the word was alive, the Word was God, the Word is God, the Word, everything was created through the Word, and it's interesting how John, the Gospel of John, refers to Jesus as the Word, that we've gone over this in creation, how are things created, God spoke them into existence, and when we went through John chapter 1, we can go to the next slide, when we went through John chapter 1, what did we learn? We learned that Jesus is the one that created everything. Everything was created through him and for him, right? Do you remember this? So we learned that God's word spoke things into existence, like light. God said, let there be light, and what happened? There was light. So Jesus spoke it into existence. So his word is very powerful. In the end, when it's all said and done, all the armies of the earth will come against God. And Jesus defeats them with what? With his word, right? So we'll look a little bit more into what God's word is. But John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God. The word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. He created, God created everything through him. And nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So 
So I always like to read that and replace all the pronouns with the name, with Jesus' name, right? So in the beginning, Jesus already existed. Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Jesus, and nothing was created except through Jesus. Jesus gave life to everything that was created, and Jesus' life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Right? So we've been over that before. When God created the world, when we read that back in Genesis, that was Jesus that was creating it. He spoke it into existence. So we'll look at a, a couple other verses, and be, these will be up on the screen. But Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, Put on salvation as your helmet, and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So when we... Ephesians, if we continue to read in chapter 6 there, we learn that the battle is not between flesh and blood, but the battle is between... Um, it's a spiritual battle between principalities, between us and principalities. So the battle is not with each other. So we're not to use God's word to fight against each other, to tell each other where we're wrong. This Christian church has been doing that for many, many years, arguing over little different things here and there. What text they read, what language they read it in, how they interpret it. There's some non-negotiables. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And he is seated at the right hand of God. That's a non-negotiable, right? He was born of a virgin. That's a non-negotiable. But other than that, the Christian church spends a lot of time arguing over little things. So, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is to be used in battle, in our spiritual battle that we go through every day. In our thought lives, the enemy comes attacking us in our thought lives, telling us we're something we're not telling us we need something we don't, <clears throat> trying to deceive us and manipulate us. And how are we to fight that battle? With the Word of God, right? And that would be God's Word right here. With Jesus, looking to Him first, and in His Word. So, the next verse we'll look at is First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 through 25. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the fields. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. So here we learn that the Word is Jesus. The Word is the Bible. But here we learn that the Word is the good news. And what's the good news? That Jesus came, died on the cross for each and every one of our sins, and that He rose again, that He is fully God, fully man, and that He was willing to sacrifice Himself. So that is the good news. That is the Word, right? Jesus is the Word. The Bible has a very interesting theme Every bit of it points to Jesus. It's all about him, right? The New Testament, the Old Testament, all points towards him. So, let's look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. 
Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. So we learn here that nothing in all creation is hidden from God. So he sees everything. He knows everything. There's nothing we do that he doesn't know about. That everything is naked and exposed before him, before his eyes. He sees it all. There's nothing that we do in secret that we've hidden from him. Right? It's all out in the open. That God is the one whom we're accountable to. So you hear this, we have an accountability partner, um, which I'm not a huge fan of, because the Bible makes it pretty clear, we are accountable to God. He is the one to whom we are accountable to. So we can live our life and we can do whatever we want, thinking we maybe have got away with something or we don't have to really follow God's word. We don't really have to love our neighbor or we don't really have to love our enemy. But God sees it all, and he's the one that we're accountable to. Now, if you want to go to someone, you're struggling with something in your life, and you want to go to someone for help or just to talk through it, that's absolutely fine. That's not what I'm talking about. But expecting that someone else is going to hold you accountable is unrealistic. God is the one we're accountable to. So when we struggle with something, we should go to God first, right? When we have a problem in our lives... God should be the first one we go to. So we talked about this recently that, you know, the Old Testament talks a lot about idols and, and we maybe don't have the little figurines that they had back then, but we still have the same things. We have many things in our lives that we can put above God and any one of those becomes an idol. Where we spend our time, our talent, and our treasure, that tells us what is important to us. Is it the things of God we're spending our time, talent, and treasure on or is it our own desires, things that please us. And that when we put those things above God, that becomes an idol. So when we have a problem, when we're struggling with something, when we have um, a temptation that comes to us, whatever that is, maybe for the person that struggles with alcohol, they have this urge to, to drink, and they are quick to call this accountability partner, but they're not first going to God. And that's where they come off the track. That's where they're in the wrong. The first person you should go to is Jesus, right? Because he knows everything you're faced with. All the same temptations you have here on this earth, he faced them all. He was fully human. He lived a life here. He knows exactly what we're going through. He knows how it feels to be abandoned. He was abandoned by all of his friends. He knows how it feels to be wrongly accused. He was wrongly accused. He knows how it feels to be falsely imprisoned, to be persecuted for um, his beliefs, be persecuted by believers, right? It was the ones that came after him the hardest were the, the Jews, the people that supposedly believed in the, this God that they served. So he understands it all. There's nothing that we go through in this life that he doesn't understand. So when we're struggling with something, the first place we should go is to God, to Jesus. And then, after we've gone to him and asked him for help, and that's quick in our thought lives, God, help me with this. Jesus, help me with this. I'm struggling with this right now, or I'm frustrated with this. Please help me. Then after we've done that, and we want to call up our buddy or our friend to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you pray for me? That's absolutely okay. But it's when we put this accountability partner above God that we're in the wrong. 
God's the one we should go to first always. He's the one that we're accountable to. And he sees everything. There's nothing we're going to do that he doesn't see. He doesn't know about. The Bible says that love casts out all fears. So when we're fearful of something we're doing, maybe we're fearful of what other people think, then we're probably doing something we shouldn't be doing. Or when we're fearful of what other people may think, maybe we're not doing something that God's asked us to do. It can go either way. But either way, if we're fearful, then we're probably not following God's command. God's commands are pretty simple. Jesus summed them all up into two commands. Do you remember what they are? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So that's first and foremost. And the second command is love your neighbor as yourself. So we're loving God, and we love our neighbor. And it's interesting that when this came up, when Jesus brought this up, one of the religious people back then challenged him and said, yeah, but who is my neighbor? And he gave them the story of the Samaritan, where the Samaritan had been, or where the, the man had been robbed and left on the side of the road, and the priest walks by, crosses over the other side, doesn't want to deal with it. And another person from the church walks by, crosses over the other side of the road, doesn't want to help him. But this Samaritan, who the Jews hated, and the Samaritans hated them as well, stops and helps him so he tells this story and at the end he says who was the neighbor to this man and they said well the samaritan was which would have shocked them because that's not what they would have thought so jesus is telling them to love their neighbor love the samaritans who were literally their neighbors not that far away the jews at that time would travel days out of their way to go around samaria if they had to go that way they hated them that much so for Jesus to tell them to love them would have been pretty shocking for them. So, so we're to love God first. We're to love everyone around us, including our enemies second. And then we're to love ourselves. And I would say to you, loving yourself isn't all that hard. That's the easiest one. But putting the other two first. So when we're loving God, then we shouldn't be fearful of what other people think. We shouldn't be doing things that, that cause us that fear. But we should be doing the things that God's asked us to do. And if we're fearful not to do the things God's called us to do, then we're not really loving God. Does that make sense? So, we'll continue on looking at um, what, is, what is God watching or, or what is he seeing. Everything's naked and exposed before him. Well, what else does the Bible say about this? So, Proverbs 15, verse 3, it'll be up on the screen, is another one. The Lord is watching everywhere, keeping his eye on both evil, the evil and the good. So again, the Lord is watching everything. God sees everything. There's nothing that is hidden from him. He knows all. He sees all. He's with all. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly what you're thinking. He knows what's troubling you. He knows your fears. He knows your thoughts. He knows your desires. There's nothing that you can't keep from him. But the question is, why do we not go to him more often, right? Why do we not turn to him when we need him? Why do we not turn to him when we're scared, when we're afraid, when we're upset, when we're happy, when we're sad, for all of that? We should turn to him first. There's nothing that we're going to say to him that he doesn't already know. Kind of like in the, in the beginning with Adam and Eve, and they had sinned, they'd eaten the fruit, and then they are in the, God comes walking through the garden and calls out, Adam, where are you? you think he really didn't know where Adam was? He knew exactly where Adam was. And then he says, Adam, what have you done? 
Do you think God didn't know what Adam had done? He knew exactly what he had done. But what was God doing? God was calling Adam to confession. This is what I've done, Lord. I've sinned against you. And when the next words out of our mouth are, please forgive me, what does God promise us? That he forgives us every single time. There's not one single sin that we've ever committed that he doesn't forgive. And the way God forgives isn't how we forgive as humans. When I forgive someone like Shannon and she makes me mad enough, I'm probably going to bring it up again, right? That's sometimes how it works. But when God forgives us, he removes it from our record. It's never brought up again. It's like it never happened. So that's how God forgives. And that's how we're to forgive too. We're to forgive and move on like it never happened. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. We read about people like King David who went on to commit murder, to have an affair. But then when we read about him in the New Testament, we don't read about any of that. And what happened in between the Old Testament and the New Testament Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for every single sin ever committed. So there's a penalty for sin, and that penalty is always death. But Jesus paid that penalty, and every sin we've ever committed was taken out then. So how can our sins be removed from us? Because Jesus paid the penalty for those sins. So it's removed from our record. So when I read about David in the New Testament, I don't read about the things that he did in sin. Because I would say to you, he asked for forgiveness. And God gave him that forgiveness. And only because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. So we'll continue on here. We'll look at Psalms chapter 34. And the entire chapter is, is great. We won't read the whole thing. We'll just read starting here in verse 15. So the eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. His ears are open to their cries for help. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. He will, eat, he will erase their memory from the earth. The Lord hears his people. The Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he rescues those whose spirits are crushed. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to the rescue each time. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to the rescue each time. So all of Psalm 34 is a great read. But here we read that the eyes of the Lord are washing over those who do right. So he's watching over us. He's protecting us. He hears our cries when we're in need. He rescues us every single time. Maybe not in the way we expect or the way we want, but he's always working in our lives. And if we're willing to be patient and let him work, we'll get to see his hand every single time we're in need. And he'll rescue us every single time. He's close to those who are brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. He never leaves us. He never abandons us. When we ask Jesus into our lives, he never walks away. Even when we screw up, even when we fall short, even when we make mistakes, he never leaves us, he never abandons us. He's always with us. And all we have to do is reach out and ask him for help. Jesus, help me with this. Jesus, I'm struggling today with this. Jesus, I need you. And it's as simple as that. And it's, 
maybe not even out loud, just a thought in our minds. So we'll go back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. So this high priest, the Jews had a high priest, and the high priest was the, the highest of the, the priests, the highest of the officials um, in the temple. And this high priest, once a year, would go and make an atonement, make a sacrifice for his own sins and for the people's sins. Um, and he would bring that to God, right? But Jesus is our ultimate high priest. He paid the penalty for our sins. He opened that doorway that the, the temple was uh, had an outer courtyard, and then you had the inner temple, and then you had the most holy of holies. And there was a curtain there, a very thick curtain, like very thick, that separated. And that's where he would go once a year, and that's where the presence of God was. Now, God was everywhere, but for them... That's where they found the presence of God. And it's very, paints this very vivid picture. That once a year, this priest, when he made atonement for his own sins, a sacrifice for his own sins and for the people's sins in the presence of God. But when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was ripped in two, meaning that Jesus' sacrifice gave everyone access to God directly. And not that they didn't have it before. It's this picture that God paints for us, remember? God gives us pictures and, and, and tells us stories all to, to give us a, a deeper understanding of who he is. So, Jesus, our high priest, who entered heaven, Jesus is the Son of God, so let us hold firmly to what we believe. The New King James Version says, let us hold firmly to our confession. Um, and then the King James says, let us hold firmly to our profession. So what is it saying? What do we believe? Well, when we become a Christian, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe this good news. And we're told to hold firmly to that, to our confession of faith. We confess that Jesus is God with our mouth. We believe it in our hearts, and we have a changed life. And then the, the King James, we profess. We profess it or confess it, right? So Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 make it clear. When we believe in our hearts... And we confess with our mouth, right? So our words speak that Jesus is God, that we've had this changed life, that we have a relationship with him, we've asked him into our lives, and our lives are never the same after that. We've spoken that. Um, we also have an inner change in our hearts. Our heart changes, that, and then we're saved. And that's what we're told to, to hold on to here, to hold firmly to what we believe, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for our sins. And that our confession or our profession is what we should be paying attention to. Our confession is that we'll hold on to Jesus, that we believe he is the Son of God, even when we face trials, even when we're persecuted. Remember, Jesus faced trials and was persecuted too. He knows exactly what you're going through, right? But if we deny Jesus before men, if we believers in Jesus, but we deny him, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus will deny us before the Father, before God, right? So we want to, he's encouraging us that Jesus has done all the work. He's our high priest. He's gone before us, that we're to follow him and hold firmly on to what he is. 
He is the Son of God, laid down his life for us. That we should not be ashamed of the name of Jesus, that we should not be afraid to follow Jesus, regardless of what other people think. That's what he's saying here in verse 14. So verse 15, the high priest, this high priest of ours, understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So how is it that Jesus could take on all the sins of the world? How is it that Jesus could be the perfect sacrifice on the cross for us? Because he lived the perfect life. He didn't sin in any way, any shape, any form. That he lived a life here on earth, faced all the same testings and troubles and trials that we face, yet he didn't sin. And so when they put him to death, death couldn't hold him because the penalty for sin is death. But he was sinless, and that's important. So death couldn't hold him, and he was risen from the dead, right? He went to the cross willingly for each and every one of us, faced all the same things we do and more, and yet when they put him to death, it was unjustly, right? He had no sin in his life. There is no penalty for the life he lived. That's how he was able to go to the cross to take on our sins, to be face uh, to face a death that he didn't deserve, that he didn't, um, did nothing, nothing in this life that would have warranted that. But we did, and he, he went to the cross for each and every one of us. Where we get to see this, though, is a couple places, but we'll look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. And this is where Jesus was in the wilderness. So we'll, we'll read through to verse 11. So, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For forty days and forty nights he fasted, and he became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the Scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here, a few interesting points. He's led into this temptation. He's led into storms. And so we see that, we see that with the disciples, where they're led into it. Jesus sends them across the, the sea, and a great storm comes. So God does lead us into storms, which maybe hard to understand or hard to grasp why, but the simple, basic explanation as to why is because when we're led into these storms that are more than we can handle, we have to lean on God. We turn to Him and ask Him for help. So, He's led into the, into the wilderness. Satan comes and, and tempts Him and says, you've been fasting, you're very hungry, command that these stones turn into bread. And how does Jesus respond? He responds with the Word of God. He quotes God's Word. He quotes the Bible. So what is he using? He's using the sword, which is the Word of God, in this spiritual battle, right? So we'll continue on. Then the devil took him to the holy city of Jerusalem, to the highest point in the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off, for the Scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. 
Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. So next, the enemy, Satan, uses God's word and tries to manipulate it into something it doesn't say, right? And oftentimes, that's why we like to go through the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, because you can take the Bible out of context. We can go to a, to a, a verse in the Bible or a sentence in the Bible that says there is no God, and you can build a doctrine or a belief system off of that, but you would build it falsely, because when I put it into context, the very next, or the sentence before that says, a fool in his heart says there is no God, right? So we need it all in context. And the context is all the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And oftentimes, there's some things that have gone on, like in the Catholic Church, for example, with communion and, and the thought that it's really this, the body and blood of Jesus. There's some scriptures, there's some areas of, of the Bible that could lead you to that way of thinking. And that was the only place in the Bible that talked about it. And that was the only thing God gave you. Then I would say that's correct. But there's other places that speak of it being a representation, not actually his body and his blood, but being um, a reminder, right? A reminder of his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. So when I put it all into context, I would have a hard time teaching that, that it, when we take communion, that it's really his body and really his blood. So there's different areas like that. And that's what Jesus is doing here. The enemies come against him and, and used God's own word to try and manipulate it. In the beginning, with Adam and Eve, when Satan comes and tempts Eve, he asks her, did God really say this? Right? He challenges God's word and, and tries to manipulate it. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds by knowing what God's word says. We're all to read and understand God's word. There's nothing too complex for us. When we ask him for help, help me to understand this area, God. I don't understand what you're saying here. He answers our prayer every single time. So, so he answers, Jesus responds with God's word, saying that we're to trust in God. We're not to test him. Um, so next, the third temptation, the next, the devil took him to a peak of a ver- on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, I will give all these to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord, your God, and serve him only. So all three times that he was tempted, how did Jesus respond? With the word of God, with what the Bible says, right? So that's our sword. So we've been over that today. The Bible is our sword. And it's a weapon to be used against other people. Should we go after other people groups, right? And, and tell them, all oh, this is what the Bible says, and, and you're going to hell if you don't follow it? No, I didn't read that anywhere today. But what I did read was that it's a tool, a weapon to be used in a spiritual battle, right? So when the enemy comes against us, we should know what God's Word says. And the only way we know what God's Word says is if we spend time in it regularly, right? Every day we should read God's Word. Every day. We should spend time in prayer with Him, in communion with Him, um, talking to God, and every day we should spend time reading His Word. So, then verse 11, Then the devil went away, and the angels came and took care of Jesus. So Jesus, when he talks about facing temptations, trials, 
and he's faced all the ones we've faced, I would say to you he's faced even more than what we've ever faced. I'm not sure any of us have had, been in the presence of the devil that's been tempting us, right? So he faced even greater trials than we've ever faced, and yet he still did not sin. So we'll continue on here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And that's what it's all about. That we could be made, made right with God through Christ. That he paid the penalty for our sin. He who never sinned took on our sins so that they could be removed from our record when we ask God to forgive us. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. He did this for their own sins first, and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all. He offered himself as a sacrifice for the people's sins. So the high priest would offer a sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people and have to do that regularly, right? Jesus offered a sacrifice once and for all, for all the people's sins, for all of our sins. The law appointed a high priest whom were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath, and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. Right? So again, we read the, the law, the Old Testament, pointed to this high priest. God gives high priests. But then after that, God gave us his son. So the law is pointing to our need for Jesus. Right? The only perfect system out there is God's system. The system that he sent his son to die in our place. So we'll finish up the last couple of verses here. We'll look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 25, and then we'll finish up with the last verse of Hebrews. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 25. For God called you to do good even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. So God has called us all to do good, even if that means a hard time, right? Even if that means suffering, just as Christ suffered for us, he set the example, he led the life that we're called to to lead, that it's not an easy life. He, going back to, to 1 Peter here, Verse 22, he never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He never deceived anyone. He never misled them, misguided them. He never sinned. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. How many times do we want to retaliate or threaten somebody else when they've wronged us? Yet he never did that. Jesus never did that. Jesus lived the example of what we're supposed to live. He set the example for us. He's the kind of leader you want in your life. There's many leaders who tell you, do as I say, but not as I do, right? Demand it or command it. Jesus never demanded it or commanded it. What did he do? He do? He 
lived the life we're supposed to live. He set the example. He set the example for how we're to lead in our families, how we're to lead in work, and we're to lead by example. We should be doing what we say, right? If we preach safety at our places of work, but yet we're not willing to follow those safety protocols, then we're not leading by example, right? Or if we're preaching that these processes should be followed at work, but yet we don't follow them ourselves and we're not leading by example. If we tell our children to live a life this way, but yet we don't live it ourselves, we're not leading by example. And all of us are called to lead. All of us have families. All of us have children. We're all... Well, the children don't have children yet. All of us are called to lead. All of us have someone that's watching us. If it's not our own children, it's our nieces, our nephews, it's a family friend, it's friends in the neighborhood who have children. All of us have someone watching us. So we're all called to lead in some, some way, some shape, some form. So getting back to the text, he did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. So he left it in God's hands, right? He didn't take revenge. And many, many times in the Bible, the Bible says not to take revenge, right? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. So we're to put it in God's hands. Do we really have this faith that we believe God is who he says he is? That he, when we ask him into our lives, not everyone has this promise, but that he is leading and guiding our lives. Unbelievers don't have that promise that he's leading and guiding them. What unbelievers have is that he is convicting them of their singular sin, their unbelief in Jesus. But the lifestyle they live, he may not be convicting them of that. But for believers, he convicts us of our sins and that he is leading and guiding us. And do we really trust that is what he's asking. So continuing on, 1 Peter verse 24. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and alive to what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. So he personally carried our sins. The Bible tells us that we're a slave to sin. And all of us have different things that we are a slave to. Different sins that we're susceptible to. We're never to look down on someone else thinking, I would never do that. Because we all have our own struggles. But he paid the penalty for that sin. He took that sin on. And he freed us from those sins. He freed us from that bondage. I can think of that in my own life, my own sins that I struggled with, my own things. And then when I became a Christian, those struggles were a whole lot less, right? And may I, I may have chose to sin again, but that was willing. I wasn't drug into it. I wasn't a slave to that sin anymore. Jesus freed us from our sins, freed us from those desires. And then when we struggle with those desires or those thoughts or those sins, those things that drag us back down into that old life that we had, we turn to Jesus first. Ask him to help us. He understands what we're going through. He understands our struggles. So finishing off here in verse 25. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your soul. All of us have been like lost sheep. All of us have wandered away. All of us are in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. So finishing off here in Hebrews, verse 16. 
So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So let us come boldly. So how can we come boldly to the throne room of our God? Because we can ask him to forgive us for the mistakes we've made, for the sins in our life, and he removes it from our record. He wipes it clean. He washes us white as snow. So we can come boldly before the throne of our God because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. He did all the work. We can ask for forgiveness when we can be forgiven. And we can come boldly to our God. Not boldly as in arrogantly, but boldly as in confidently. We can be confident in the promises God gives us. And there we will receive his mercy. And we will find grace, his grace, when we need it most. And what is grace? Grace often gets defined as you know, people oh, give me some grace, but I would say to you the only grace that there is is God's grace. And God's grace is his unmerited, undeserved favor. There's nothing we've done in this life to earn it, to deserve any of the good things he does for us. His grace he gives out, his unmerited, undeserved favor, only because he loves us. Not because we've earned it in any way, shape, or form. Our relationship with God is never transactional. It's not like our, our relationships here on earth. My relationship with people I work with is transactional. I provide you a service, you pay me, right? I work for you this many hours, you pay me. I work for you this many months, you pay me, right? That's all transactional. I did this for you, you owe me. I did something nice for you, you should do something nice for me. We often think of our relationships that way. Our relationship with God is not that way. He loved us first. We choose to love him. He owes us nothing, right? And when we love him, when we live a life that loves him, we don't expect anything in return, right? So God's grace is unmerited, unearned favor that he loves us. He blesses us. He encourages us. He protects us, not because we've earned it or deserve it, but simply because he loves us. And so we should go out and love others, right? Love our neighbor, which is everyone around us. And how do we show that love? Is love a feeling? I feel all warm and fuzzy? No, we've been over this many times. So I hope you understand this. Love is an action. Love is denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following Jesus. Love is a choice. Love is not a feeling. The Bible makes that very, very clear. Hollywood wants you to make, it, make you think it's a feeling. I fell in and out of love with this person. No, you chose to love them or you chose not to. Love is not a feeling I have, but love is an action I do. Love is serving whoever it is I love, right? Denying myself, picking up my cross, doing the dishes, denying myself, picking up the cross, going grocery shopping. Those are the things I do when I'm trying to show love to my wife. Not that I do them very well or often enough but that's what love is love is an action love is not a feeling so when we choose to love god with our actions with our words and we choose to love others that's the life we're to live right not an easy life and we can expect hard times and persecutions but there's many rewards for us in eternity any questions? You don't have one? 
Not a single question? She's like looking around. Does somebody have their hand up? You have one? Savannah does. That's a good question. So the Old Testament was before Jesus. So the people of the Old Testament looked at their lives, um, and God tells the story of the Jewish people, tells the story of creation, and then into the Jewish people before Jesus. And so the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the New Testament is the life of Jesus when he came to this earth, and the life after Jesus. So in the Old Testament you had the Jews and the Gentiles, and in the New Testament you have believers and unbelievers. And there was a division. That's kind of like the simple answer. There's more to it than that. But. And sometimes people think the Old Testament, oh, it's not really relevant to us today, but it's still very relevant to us today. So. It all still points to Jesus, even in the Old Testament. Yeah. Which is pretty, it's pretty crazy. And there was. There were lots of, there were like oh, 600 crazy. and some laws when you read through the Old yeah. Testament, like through Leviticus. Like the first five books, they give you a lot of the laws, the rules and regulations they had to follow. Well, that sounds crazy, right? But again, it points to our need for Jesus. No one can follow this perfect life. We need a Savior. And it wasn't an afterthought. When God created the earth, God created the world, he knew that he would send his son to pay that, to be that sacrifice. So then the question is, well, what about people in the Old Testament? Are they saved or how do they, are they in heaven? And the answer is yes. If they believed in the Messiah to come or they believed in God, the creator, they believed in Jesus, it's the same way for us today. We believe in Jesus we have eternal life. When they believed in Jesus, they had eternal life. So that's a good question. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. Because that is, that's my, that's how, that was my simple answer. Well, his answer is simple, but my other one, my other one I tell people, like, there's a lot of rules. I can follow, I mean, like, you think how all these rules, and you're like, oh, did that, now I'm not going to go to heaven. So for me, lately I've been reading through Numbers and Deuteronomy, some books in the Old Testament, and one of the things that I found interesting was they cast lots for everything, which was kind of like rolling dice, but that's how they determined like the 12 tribes, which lot, plot of land would each of them get? Well, they cast lots, and they trusted that God would have the lot fall on wherever he wanted it. So that's how they divided it up, and that they were to cast lots for everything, which really meant that they were going to God for every decision that they made as a nation. Okay, God, do you want us to go right or left? Okay, God, this is the plot of land. Which tribe do you want? So that they were looking to God for every decision is what they're told. And I think that's still applicable to, to us today. We make lots of decisions every single day, and we should ask God, help guide me in this decision. So, Do you have any questions? Not one? Oh, man. What about you? That all made sense to you? Very clear? What well, wasn't clear? Nothing. Nothing? It was all clear? You understood it all? Who's our high priest? 
Who's our high priest? Jesus. That's always a, that's always a good answer for any question. Jesus. That's the preschool answer. Okay. <laughs> All right. No more questions. Should we pray? You ready? Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to come together to learn more about you. I just ask that you would lead us and guide us this week, that you would just convict us of the way you want us to move. You would speak loudly to each one of us. You'd speak to our hearts, that you would give us a heart to listen to you, not to turn away from your leading and your guiding. That you would protect us, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would just give us a desire to spend time with you this week, each and every day and all throughout the day, that we would come to you first when we face a, a problem or a concern or a crossroad, that we would look to you first, that you would just speak to us and lead us and guide us in a way that only you can. Help us to be that light and witness to those around us. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to love our family and our friends. And help us to love you first and foremost, above all. It's in Jesus' mighty, mighty name we pray all these things. Amen. Should we sing one last song? You want to?